This is The Shift Podcast. Coming up today on The Shift Daily Podcast, our sports boss, Cammie Kepke from Global Calgary, joins the show to break down the NHL's North Division. In case you missed it on the radio, uh, Ryan celebrates the ever-given ship finally being freed in the Suez Canal and the fact that an Egyptian curse might be behind it. Chats about NASA, their helicopter on Mars, and sexy sax solos on TikTok. We also get information and inside scoop from Keith Mackey. He is an aviation expert who helps us understand the Snowbirds crash. As that information was released, the crash was last May of last summer. Plus, are you okay, as always on the Shift Daily Podcast, are you okay with Donald Trump making a toast at your wedding? Get it all in the podcast. My favorite days of the week are the days that the Flames don't play. That is how it feels lately. Now, before we get into NHL talk, let's welcome Cami Kepke, sports guru, football player, <laughs> skier, overall. Here, yes, this is the problem when uh, I tell you that I'm a night owl. You actually get the call to come on the show at 1130 at night. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is our local time in Calgary. And we, you know what? It's very true. But I know you were staying up watching hockey anyway. So it's not my fault. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's funny that you say your favorite days are when the Flames don't play. Because I just heard from a friend today saying, yeah, I'm not watching the game. I I don't watch the Flames anymore this season. Some fans have well and truly given up on this thing. Well, they have, and I, you know what? I love watching them play because they're really awesome for about twelve minutes, and um, and I don't know, man. I feel like this is the uh, the ever given sideways in the Suez Canal here. Um, if ever there was an internet meme that described the Flames, they've run aground and they're basically just blocking traffic for a week. It's kind of how it feels. It's, yeah, they're completely out of runway mathematically. I think they can afford to lose four more games this season before they're actually mathematically eliminated. But, man, I don't even know if the Flames were expecting to make the playoffs when they brought in Sutter. I think it's more Sutter weeding out who's going to stay and who's going to go after this season's up. And Winnipeg is just probably, I'd say, the best team in the North Division right now. If there's someone I don't want to go up against, it's Mark Shifley and Nick Ehlers, or it is Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl right now. Well, and that's they, they, we'll get to complimenting those guys. I'm not done tearing up the flames yet. Um, <laughs> the, but no, but I mean, when Sutter came in back in the early 2000s, that's what happened. He came in around Christmas time, and it took uh, the rest of the season. Nothing happened. The next year, they did well. So I would suggest that that's probably a reasonable expectation of what's going to happen in this scenario. But it's true. I mean, this is this is just absolutely dreadful. Frankly, quite heartbreaking to watch because it's just. Nasty, and I'm sure that most people who have jobs and a, and a handsome salary in life and the career that we've chosen look at these guys and how much money they make and go, you know, this is what you get paid for, like being being brutal. And it's it's just it's it's absolutely dreadful to watch. Now, fans online are tearing them up. Absolutely, there's no denying that. Um, let's go from west to east, though, and let's touch on all the teams because some of these teams, oh, before we get there, some of these teams deserve compliments. I would like to say this, uh, out of respect for Ottawa, who has been held as the absolute worst in Canada and the standard of Calgary's dropped five games, whatever, to Ottawa, and everyone's like, ah, you know, you're losing to the worst team. The reality is, is, no, that's just how bad you are. You are that bad. Like you, it's quite possible that you are the worst team in the league when you lose to the worst team in the league every game. I need to get that off my chest. Thank you. Let's go west to east uh, and let's look at Vancouver. I actually want to compliment Ottawa. You know, when we first talked at the beginning of the season, I think I said, yeah, I think Ottawa is going to finish last, but they're going to live up to the pesky Sens rep. I thought from the like first touch drop on the season that the Sens were going to make everybody work to steal the win from them. And they were awful at the start. But as of late, they've been playing the way I thought they would all season. They've been really mm-hmm. chippy and hard to go up against. You have to earn your wins against them. So you, you can't take that away from DJ Smith and the gang. And they got some sick no, prospects. Did you see Jake Sanderson in the NCAA? No, I haven't. He almost ended it in that 5 OT. Hit a post. Hit a post, unfortunately. Oh, really? And then a, a good uh, Wilcox boy. Wilcox Saskatchewan. Luke Milmock was able to finish that one off. 
Five times overtime. Oh my god. I get wind going upstairs. They had a goalie because he cramped. He cramped in the seventh period, so they had to yank him. <laughs> That's so crazy, hey man. Um, all right, so Ottawa looks, uh, you know, quite good under con- uh, context of where they're at this season. Toronto looks uh, incredibly strong and deadly, but I don't think. Please take no offense, Southern Ontario. I know you guys love your Leafs, but I don't think they've got. I don't think they've got it this year. I think that there's some danger, danger in um, a couple other teams. So, what do you see in Toronto? In Toronto, I see probably the most talented roster on paper, but maybe it's just the way they've played in the last few years and more of a character thing for me. I don't see them going all the way. I see them coming up against a team that's riding a lot of momentum into the playoffs that will give them a run, and I predict more heartbreak for Toronto fans this season. Well, the good news is they don't have to play Boston to get out of the first round uh, like they normally run into. So that's that's good news for them. Uh, although I would acknowledge Austin Matthews, boy, he's just getting better and better. That guy's deadly. Oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's fun to watch though. Like it's like he just goes to work. He's like a surgeon. How he works the puck, um, just absolutely deadly. There was that goal he scored last week where he psyched out the goalie to the left and went to his backhand and went top cheese with it. It was just, uh, it was a thing of beauty. Okay, so we move our way to Winnipeg, who I think will take the division is going to be the Jets. They are built. Big, strong, talented, and dangerous. Up front, they are built, strong, talented, dangerous. I thought their undoing was going to be the back end. I expected Connor Hellebuck to be great, and he has been lately. I thought that the Jets had the best defensive core in the AHL. But they've totally proven me wrong. But to be fair, who at the start of the season thought, like, yeah, Neil Pionk, Tucker Pullman, they're going to be the guys. They're going to get it done this year. But they have. And it's been so entertaining to watch. Their attack is so balanced. And I hate to say it, even though, like, as a Flames reporter, you want to see them continue so that you still have a job and things to report on. But the Jets are just fun (laughs) to watch. They absolutely dismantle people. They do. And uh, Edmonton is equally as dangerous. And I will acknowledge this. Darnell Nurse, for me, at the beginning of the season, I used to um, say he's the only guy in the entire league that takes the the award for the statement, loses the puck. Now, fast forward a couple of months here through the course of the league, and he's turned out to really find his groove. Um, I don't take it back because at the beginning of the season that was the case, but boy, oh boy, I acknowledge how far he's coming. He's been fun to watch. But he's not the only one. They've got defensive uh, gaps still, but you want to talk about speed and dangerous. Um, Edmonton, they could have a shot here. The most impressive thing to me about Darnell Nurse is that all 12 of those goals have come on even strength. We think about Edmonton, you think about that deadly power play unit that Nurse is on, but I just don't know how he's doing this at even strength. It's like he's just absorbing the residual talent from McDavid and Dreisaitl and working really hard, but I've got to say Kia is still my favorite Nurse. I, <laughs> I uh, we'll talk about this is a talented family. Um, the, the reality is, is that, um, as soon as you make a mistake and Edmonton's around those guys, um, anything can happen. And that's worth noting. Okay. Let's go to Vancouver. What do you see on the West coast? A sad violin. (laughs) It actually really threw me off the other day. I was going through some of our flames interviews and, you know, you have the names of everyone who appears in the scrum on the file name. And I saw Markstrom Sutter Tanev. And I got really confused, like, what market am I looking at? <laughs> but Vancouver, right. they got all I mean, they could still finish ahead of Calgary. I don't think uh, playoffs are going to be happening for them this season. There's just obviously a lot of disappointment there, a lot of confusion for the fans, the poor fans with what management is saying. They're saying, okay, like, in two more years, we're going to be competitive. I'm like, okay, it's been a decade since you were last competitive, so let's uh, hurry this process along, please. Now, all of this being said, I do forget that there is actually a 20-some-odd, 24 other teams in the league, 23, 24 other teams in the league that are still playing hockey elsewhere. And there is one team that um, is dreadfully worse than anything we can talk about in the Canadian North Division. And Buffalo, they were winning, and they went to overtime, and they lost. I think that was 18 in a row. You know, when as someone with no vested interest in the Sabres, it's like you you almost love to see it happen 
you cheer for the chaos more than anything. But here, this is what I want to ask you. So, back in the days of the Bard, when Shakespeare wrote plays, they were either a comedy or a tragedy. Are the Sabres a comedy or a tragedy? Uh, because I lived in St. Catharines right across the border, and I know how diehard those fans are. They're I say great it's fans. A They're great fans. It's a, it's a tragedy because those fans are so amazing. And, um, you know, that city gets kind of a bum rap. You know, people call Buffalo Barfalo, and it's not. I mean, those are good people. And, um, and it's a great place. And I just, I think that it's a tragedy because the fact that they finally started to do something with making moves. And it seems like either not the right ones or not enough because, man, it is bad. Well, in 2012, too, they went and they loaded up. They got, like, Christian Ehrhoff, Jason Pominville. They signed a lot of people to expensive contracts that people just thought they were going to be nasty. And it never panned out. But here are two tragic stats for you. The Buffalo Bills have more wins than the Sabres in 2020, 2021. And as of last weekend, the Buffalo Sabres had scored 60 goals. At that point, Connor McDavid had 61 points all by himself. That's a tragedy. I don't know how you fix that franchise either. I watched the scrum with Eric Stahl heading to Montreal, and he drove out of Buffalo. He hopped in a car, and he went six hours to Montreal. And he seemed relieved. (laughs) And can you blame him? It, It must suck going to work when just losing seems to be permeating the organization top to bottom with no clear direction. Well, and no um, new coach and then no wins for a month. And it's just absolutely dreadful. All right. Cammy Kepke with global Calgary. She's our sports boss. And um, Cammy, let's talk curling. Cause there's been so much curling action in the last few weeks. And uh, let's just get an update of, of the status of the things. Cause I know if you're a curling fan, you live it and other people pretend it doesn't exist. So what's been going on? Okay, well, first off, if you're not a fan of curling, you have weak triceps and a small brain. Curling is excellent, (laughs) to put the record out there. There have been so many incredible storylines out there. Even in the women's bubble for the Scotties, we had Laura Walker curling in there with her six-month-old son, Liam, the only baby in the bubble. She was actually, like, running off the ice to be able to breastfeed after the game. Rachel Holman made it to the final curling while eight months pregnant and sweeping hard while eight months pregnant. She actually just had her baby. Very cute. But really exciting, I think, is Brendan Botcher was Team Alberta, now Team Canada. Their uh, world championship starts Friday morning. They're taking on Scotland. But Botcher was this guy who was kind of a fresh face on the scene, up-and-comer. He seemed poised for greatness, and he made it to the final at the Briar and lost. Okay, next year, make it to the final of the Briar. Loss. Third time at the Briar, make it to the final, and he loses again. Comes into the bubble, and a little bit of magic happens thanks to a senior fan. So he was wearing these short socks, and when you come out of the hat to throw a rock, your pants kind of ride up, and you could see his bare ankles. So Grandma Barbara, who did not know him personally, in Victoria, B.C., sent him a pair of socks to the bubble, saying that his ankles looked cold. And boom, he only lost one game in them. And he finally won the Briar. And now he's got a great team ready to uh, take on the rest of the world. It sounds like a hockey player who wears his lucky underwear after a losing streak to make sure that they can win a hockey game. But if it works, it works. Actually, two-time Olympic gold medalist Johnny Moe, John Morris, did not wash his socks while he was competing at the Olympics and worked out for him. That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Sports are gross. Uh, you got to embrace it. Sports are gross. You got to embrace it. Cammy Kepke, uh, still been skiing even with the bum toes from. So this is how hard Cammy works. Just for the record, she's out skiing like every day. Being a sports journalist has got to be hard. I actually have to do a radio hit tomorrow from the ski hill. <laughs> oh, see, there you go. Oh my God, it gets even worse. That's a sports people that used to always go into the sports department. Everyone would be sitting around watching TV, watching the hockey games. So. You know, you got to be like an athlete, eh? Get out there and do the work. Live it. Smash your face up on some snow. Lose some toenails. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's Get perfect for your cred. TV career. <laughs> Get the street cred. <laughs> Cammy Kepke with Global Calgary. Thanks so much, Cammy. Appreciate you being here. 
Have a good one, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. It's time for us, though, to get Matt MacArthur to sing us a little song. Yeah, hit it, Matt. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Ryan High Tops O'Donnell. Ding. Yay, Ryan. Ding. Yay, Ryan. Woohoo. <laughs> there it is. Okay. All right. I get it. I understand. Well, let me pump up the energy here by talking about my favorite thing that has happened in 2021 so far the Suez Canal shipping crisis. <laughs> now, when I yeah. say favorite, it's obviously was a really bad thing, but it's really funny and the memes were great. But if you didn't know, it's over. It's done. What? The ship is free. The Ever no. Given was refloated last night and is now on its way down the canal. Stuff is moving through. So you might have heard this clip on the news. We'll play it again just in case you haven't. Here's a little update on the information going on in the Suez Canal right now. Salvage workers celebrating getting the stuck cargo ship moving. The Suez Canal open again. Now the work begins to clear a massive maritime traffic jam on both sides waiting to cross. The chairman of the Suez Canal Authority saying work will continue around the clock to clear the backlog and that he expects it will take three days for traffic to return to normal. As for the Ever Given, she's been escorted to a large lake at the canal's midpoint where she'll be checked for damage. Dave Packer, ABC News. Yay! Well, that's so, exciting. No one likes a clogged it canal. It is exciting. Uh, yeah, it is. So c- congratulations, Ever Given. You're, the Restorelax kicked in. Let's, you're out. You're yeah. free. <laughs> Restorelax. <laughs> no, yeah, no one likes a backlog in their canal. No, no especially that, when right? it's blocking international trade by like 30%. Now, now that it's over, the question truly is, and I know this is exactly what all of you are thinking, did an ancient Egyptian curse cause this? And I know. I have an answer for you. Oh, yeah, I've always wondered Probably that. not, but maybe. So there is a curse. It is called the Curse of the Pharaohs. It's been around for a very long time, but the idea is, you know, disturbing a mummy's tomb and final resting place, you know, could kind of maybe result in a curse or two. So why is this happening now? Well, there have been some weird stuff happening in Egypt since the Egyptian government decided to do something. They are moving 22 royal mummies from one museum in Egypt to another. They are opening, and I, when COVID is done, I need to go here. They are opening a massive museum in Egypt that will overlook the Great Pyramids. It will be the biggest collection in the world of Egyptian artifacts. It looks unbelievable, and they're moving a lot of mummies there. But that might have kicked up some bad juju because since they decided to do that, Egypt witnessed a fatal train accident, a 10-story building collapsing, the Suez Bridge Canal, and a massive concrete pillar crashing down during the construction of a bridge in another area. Now, officials say there's no link between the mummies and the Suez Canal, but I'm just saying, if the mummies get to the museum, final resting place, hopefully, and all this stops... Maybe Egypt might need to take a second look before they do this. And my best friend in the whole world is Egyptian. I asked him, are you worried about it? He says, Ryan, you know nothing. Don't ask questions. Just let the juju and the bad curse vibes pass. So thank you, Mark. We will let it pass. (laughs) Hopefully, as we all know, we will be fine. Okay, now, before we get into this next story, Let's set the mood with some music. So, you're ready to make a heist. You're going to steal an object with immeasurable value. You rope in from the top of a building. Ving Rames is in your ear giving you tips while Tom Cruise is cheering you on from afar. And success! You grab the item that you need so bad to pay your rent. Pokemon cards. (laughs) Yes, this happened. A 28-year-old man in Japan has been arrested for literally using a rope to descend into a Japanese store and steal Pokemon cards (laughs) and a boatload of cash. Tokyo resident 
I'm going to try this. Kensuke Nakanashini is suspected of descending from a six-story rooftop into a top-floor store. Happened last Tuesday. Nakanashini allegedly made off with about $9,000 worth of Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon cards, as well as about $2,300 in cash from the store's office. Now, <laughs> I got to respect Nakanashi here for for this because he was very uh, was direct with authorities when he was arrested. They said, why'd you do it? And he said, well, I was a little late on rent and I, I needed to pay some debt. And he told the police, quote, I was in the rock climbing club in high school, so I'm not afraid of heights. <laughs> That's the answer. No kidding. That's the answer. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, what do you think came first? Like chicken and egg here. Was it I'm breaking in, I need cash. So then I'm stealing cash, ooh, Pokemon cards. Or was it... Ooh, I need Pokemon cards. Ooh, cash. Because one of definitely, those two scenarios happened. Yep. Definitely. Ooh, Pokemon cards. Hey, or sorry, definitely number two. Pokemon cards. Ooh, money. Because if you don't know this, Pokemon cards are kind of like gold right now. There have been cards that have sold at auction this year for over $400,000. People have paid over $1 million for a sealed box of original Pokemon cards. And wow. this is another little weird story I found. In 2019, collectors offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to a $60,000 Pokemon card. That's how much people want this stuff. I hope they came with a free pair of sneakers. Yeah, right? I'm not, look, I'm not going hunting for your lost Pokemon cards unless you're throwing in a pair of, you know, nice Nikes for me, okay? Yeah. That would be cool, though. I don't like get a Pokemon the value. Shoe? Maybe like a red and black one for the ball or like, you know, the blue, red and black. Maybe a little bit of yellow for Pikachu. I could see that happening. Pikachu is pretty cool. Very bright. Yep. Very yellow. Very bright. But very hard to clean when kids puke on them. But aside from that, very cool. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, yeah, Mr. Nakanashi, he made off with the Pokemon cards, arrested. Unfortunately, he's going to have much more debt to pay off now. But I do kind of think it's amazing that he tried to break into this place with using like literal mission impossible tactics. Okay. It's I respect the game. Okay. <laughs> Don't steal. Game. By the way, if you're going to do it, do it with style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't hurt anybody. Don't do it at all. But if you're going to do it, do it with style. So at least you make a headline <laughs> that I can talk about in this segment. <laughs> the only thing better would be, um, the pre break in. This is with, this is a millennial thing. Forgive me, Ryan. Okay. The only thing all better right. than this yeah, yeah. would be the um, the pre-break-in break-in where you secretly stash all the cameras so you can get the good video angles of your actual break-in to steal the mm. Pokemon cards in order to get the good video for your for your 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 tweeps and your reels. Yeah, I mean you could go viral. You know what I would do is if I if I was in his footsteps here and I needed to take these Pokemon cards, I would do exactly that, set up cameras and everything, and then I would go do the the robbery and then when i'm like 98 years old i'm in the retirement home all i can eat is oatmeal and you know i'm sitting there my tiktok account just turned 90 or you know 100 as no that doesn't the math doesn't add up there my tiktok account is old i put a video of it and going haha gotcha <laughs> i love it i think it's great yeah. i mean i don't it's understand great. why anybody i don't get the the value of the things but it's just like next level spending. Um, it's a lot. Maybe that's what, maybe that's the pattern. Maybe that's the pattern we have to look at here is the amount mm -hmm. of spending on hobbies. And maybe that just sounds old of me. I apologize if it does. No, it, it actually would be a great conversation is how hobbies make money. I mean, people pay stupid amounts of money for transformers, sneakers, cars, art. You know, it, it's interesting. So we'll look into it. Uh, but, you know, Catherine and Suri asks... How do they know if it's counterfeit or not, or if the box, you know, if the box is sealed? Well, they can counterfeit sealing the box. There are people whose literal job is to identify fake Pokemon cards and boxes for collectors. There are some transactions hmm. where they hire private security to make sure the cards are handed off safely. Like it's a, it's, it's, it's stupid, but uh, yeah, 
don't do a deep dive on YouTube like me. You end up staying awake till six o'clock in the morning trying to figure out how people make money off this That's stuff. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So here's some cool stuff. And I, I'm kind of stealing uh, Andrew Ferreira's thunder here because I know he would love to talk about this and I'm sure we will, but I just have to bring it up. NASA is going to make history on Mars again in maybe just a week. And a Canadian engineer is a major part of this whole thing. The helicopter Ingenuity will be attempting its first flight, becoming the first ever human-made device to fly on another planet. Rather, So it's basically NASA's Wright Brothers moment. This is really cool because a Canadian is behind the next first flight of mankind. And I think that sentence is amazing. So I've got some cool little statistics about the helicopter coming up. But first, Mike Drolet from Global News actually got to speak with the Canadian engineer. Her name is Farah Alibe, and uh, learn a little bit more about her journey into NASA, what this flight means. And spoiler alert, the flight isn't going to be all that exciting. So let's hear it. I think the best description is meandering for my path. And, and eventually I made it and I made it where I wanted to be, um, mostly because this was my dream. And now the Montreal-born, Cambridge-educated granddaughter of immigrants who fled civil war in Madagascar has become one of the new faces of NASA. But I think what we forget to talk about is, is all the failures along the way, all the sacrifices that had to happen, all of the wrong turns, all the, the detours that were taken. Life certainly wasn't easy for Alibay, growing up as a minority in Quebec, as a Francophone in England, and overcoming NASA's lack of diversity. She applied to the agency over 50 times, eventually getting noticed by the right people. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> it's why she relishes the opportunity to speak with young girls. How long does the helicopter fly? <laughs> so for our first flight, we're not going to go very far. We're actually just hopping up and down. And so we're going to fly about 40 seconds to one minute, right? So the same way as like, you don't learn to run first, you walk first or crawl. That's what we're doing. Alibay is a genius at this stuff, but it's the way she speaks to an eight-year-old that makes her a rocket star. Mike Drolet, Global News, Toronto. Nice one, Mike. Nice one. Good one. I, I would have <laughs> I would have gone with that. So it makes her a spaceship superstar. Yeah. Yeah. Also work. Yeah. All right. Send in your space puns. Okay. Do you guys want to hear some really cool stuff about ingenuity? Ingenuity? That's the name of the air. Not the not no, we're not going on a big language thing deep oh. dive here, Shane. Well, you said good stuff I'm about sorry. ingenuity. Yep. I'm like, oh, let's talk about ingenuity. <laughs> All right, fine. You and your I'll helicopter. Find you. Don't worry. I'll find you somebody to talk about that. Be a great topic. But here are some really cool things about this. This is this this is the thing that I think is so amazing. The ingenuity helicopter actually carries a piece of fabric from the Wright Brothers plane. Oh, really? A real piece nice. of that aircraft is on that drone. So it can only fly up to 50 meters, uh, uh, travel up to 50 meters away from the rover, and it can fly for about 90 seconds. It can fly oh. at an altitude between three to five meters, so about you know 10 to 16 feet above the ground. So this thing's not going over a mountain. But the idea here is that we might be able to actually map out Mars, and which could would be crucial for figuring out where to set up a colony or mining or who knows. This this can take us in so many amazing directions, and we should be very proud that one of Canada's own is a huge part of this whole project. Beautiful. Well, I think stuff. that's cool. I can't wait to see it. Yes, I think it's really cool. Um, I if you've ever had a drone or a remote control plane or anything like that, there's always this fear that you fly too far and then you just lose signal and you don't get your drone back. I mean, imagine if you were on Mars, <laughs> <You're> totally terrified, <laughs> you get it. right? Like you get so paranoid with your remote controls that you're going to lose them here. But if you're just, you know, flying them across space, that would be least, absolutely uh, terrifying. At least you don't need to worry about a bear eating it or a neighbor stealing it or anything like that. So wherever it lands, it's going to sit there forever mm -hmm. so yes now the first potential date of this flying and this is when we should try to get andrew on to talk about it is next week april 8th it seems to be the day that they are planning to fly this does 
uh, depend on Martian weather. It's an interesting sentence, but we'll see. All right. Look to the stars, my friends. We should know more soon. Uh, now, do we got time for this last little quick yeah, we do. fun one here? Absolutely. Okay, well, it's been a while, and I know how much Shane and Matt love to hear this uh, little sound effect here. So let's go over to TikTok, and let's hear a saxophone solo in a place where it really doesn't belong. Good morning. I'm Ryan O'Donnell with today's TikTok, TikTok, TikTok Breakdown. Let me break it down for you, boys. Okay, so uh, today's TikTok is once again from the user Evan Jacobson. We have covered him plenty of times on The Shift before. What does he do, Ryan? Well, listener, he takes songs that don't have sexy saxophone solos and puts in a sexy saxophone solo. And it's an amazing piece. He's done some songs uh, that are very questionable and it's turned out to be great you know we had some biggie and that one was fantastic some snoop dog this one is great because it's a canadian artist it sounds amazing and it i'll be honest it's pretty sexy we don't That belongs I think that's there. the best one yet. <laughs> Whoa. If I'm The weekend right now, I'm hearing that and going, I need you to put that in the song. <laughs> We're going to go re-edit it. <laughs> yeah, we need some like... Well, re- that would be great. Some retrospective saxophone edits. You know mm-hmm. you know how they do, how they usually do like a 12-inch edit of a song or like a you know remix here or there? Yep. Saxophone remixes. Saxophone remixes. Could be a thing. The deep sax. That one actually cut. fits, though. Like that one is like so a sexy well. song and... And you throw a sexy sax, and mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're having sexy sex and all that kind of stuff. It's the Shift Podcast. It was a terrible, sad day for all Canadians as we love the snowbirds. There's something about the snowbirds. As old as these old planes are, what these pilots do, these men and women that get in these airplanes and fly them around upside down, side by side. From our vantage point, it looks like they're almost about to touch bellies, really. Quite remarkable. Um, news comes out about the snowbirds and the cause of that crash last year. Uh, it was heartbreaking. It was COVID. Everybody was looking forward to seeing them. And it feels kind of like everything fell apart a little bit. Now there's a cause for it, at least. Keith Mackey joins us now, aviation expert, author, and so much more. Hi, Keith. How are you? Good afternoon, Shane. I'm well. So uh, we have a result. Bird strike is the cause of the snowbirds crash. Why don't you take us through what happened on that day? There's a remarkable photo that has been published now with this report where you can see the bird um, about to go into the intake. And um, so what happened on that day with the snowbirds and now that we know that it was a bird strike? Well, it was more a bird ingestion into the engine, if you will, than just a plain bird strike, which could have been anywhere on the aircraft. And since this is a single engine airplane, the ingestion of the bird into the engine intake interrupted the airflow and caused a loss of power. It probably didn't shut the engine down completely, but it caused a great deal of uh, power loss. And consequently, the crew was faced with, the crew had little choice. They either could try to land in the Thompson River, which was straight ahead, or they could, uh, they could go ahead and uh, eject. Now, the Tudor, like any other airplane with ejection seats, has what we call an envelope where the seats are designed to function. And that's a uh, cross of the altitude and the speed of the airplane. The altitude has to be above a certain limit and the speed has to be within certain parameters. Apparently, they had to eject before they were able to enter that envelope. And when they did, uh, Miss Casey's seat failed to eject properly. Now, these are old ejection seats. They've been around for a long time. There are much better seats available now with newer systems on them that provide stabilization. 
Unfortunately, this airplane did not have that uh, feature. And Miss Casey's seat rotated almost 180 degrees after it came out of the airplane. And the, uh, uh, the Snowbird's investigation determined that that could have been caused by someone placing an object between the side of the seat and the uh, side of the airplane. Wow. Or it could have been someone's arm uh, striking on the way out that unbalanced the seat as it came out. But at any rate, whatever it was, and they were unable to determine that exactly, this caused the seat to be unstable and caused her chute not to open properly so that she could survive the accident. So it sounds like quite a remarkable turn of events. When you speak of the envelope, let's just clear that up for everybody who's listening. That becomes a place where, if I understand this correctly, Keith, and and please help me out if I don't, that when a jet engine, like on these little planes, I mean, they've got so much power, there's a point where the engine is just basically pushing you up and out of the way. And then there's a place where you get to where they have enough lift to kind of coast. And it hadn't reached that place yet of being high enough, having enough speed to be able to coast and not rely on the just the raw thrust to keep it going. Do I understand that correctly? Well, let me explain it in a little bit different manner. As the airplane takes off, it acquires potential energy in its speed and its altitude. And you can take this potential energy and convert it into kinetic energy by gliding down. We can dispel the uh, the energy, if you will, to the point where we uh, can land the airplane again. Or if we eject, we have to have enough energy to get us high enough and fast enough so that we're in the design parameter of the seat to function properly. And they were unable to do that. And another consideration would be the altitude it takes to open a parachute as well. Yes, that is, uh, of course, compensated for in this envelope. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, thank you for the information. So uh, is this typical when there's a crash that there's usually a series of things that go wrong? Because to recap it, we have a bird ingestion, then we have the envelope speed issue, then we have the ejection, not quite right, whether it was an object uh, setting that one seat not in the right direction. Is that pretty typical? Well, almost any accident is the result of a chain of events. If anything broke that chain of events, the accident wouldn't happen. If they couldn't get their fuel on time, that would have delayed their departure. They wouldn't have been taking off at the time that bird was headed in the other direction. And you can go right down the list and think of numerous things that could have happened that would have prevented the accident that unfortunately did not. Single engine for a small plane like this, do any of these jets have two engines? Yes, some of them do. Of course, that just adds to the complexity of it. And for what the uh, the snowbirds are doing, the single engine jet provides it a lot of advantages. There's less maintenance to be done. We don't have to worry about two engines needing to be replaced each time. If something were wrong at a stop or something, there's only one. So the airplane either works or it doesn't. So it, it simplifies things a little bit. Okay. And... Emergency procedures in a case like this, you know, we have a scenario of when I took my pilot's license and just to be clear, I didn't ever finish my P-Star just because of uh, being a dad in time. But (laughs) one of the things you get taught, the very first things you get taught in flight school is to constantly scan for options. You need to be looking for places to land, which usually rural roads are bad because of things like power lines, but you are looking for other runways. You are looking for uh, flat land areas. You're looking for any other options just in case something goes wrong and you need to know where to go. Now, in a case like this, they're in a rural area or an urban area, so they're right in the city. There's not a ton of options. What really could they have tried to do, even if they were able to glide out of it? Well, there again, that's a judgment call. It's what you see through your eyes at the moment it takes place. And you're correct. They were flying down the Thompson River toward Kamloops. On the right side of the river, there is a park and some areas there that might have provided a place to land. If you go to the left side of the river, I believe you have a road and a lot of buildings there, which probably would have precluded any kind of an emergency landing there. The other option was ditching in the river. And it's doubtful that the airplane ditches very well. 
So perhaps they decided that was not an option and they thought they had enough potential energy stored that they could, by raising the nose, enter that ejection envelope. Unfortunately, they ran out of energy before they did. So it was just a, uh, as you describe, a series of events where we didn't have enough positive things happen that could have prevented the, uh, the accident. Okay, so birds, uh, bird strikes and bird ingestion, they happen. We've seen photos, they're very easy to find online, of uh, noses of 737s completely bashed in thanks to a big chubby goose or something that's hit the front of it. Uh, can you give us an example of other scenarios that have worked out when there's been a bird striker or ingestion of a bird into an engine, but they've managed to be able to get that glide path and safely pull out of this? Well, most of the time you're dealing with a two-engine airplane. And if you only hit one bird, you're only damaging one engine and the airplane's going to fly fine. And with the larger aircraft, the, uh, the birds generally aren't big enough to do real serious damage with certain notable exceptions. But generally, uh, the bird strike will cause some damage to the inlet guide vanes and fan blades on the engine that can be replaced. And the airplane uh, with a little bit of maintenance goes on about its business. But of course, with a smaller airplane, it takes a, a smaller bird to do considerable damage, as was the case here. When was it United's plane that landed in the Hudson River? That, um, that was very similar to this, wasn't it? It was U.S. Air. And, U.S. Air. Uh, what had happened is the pilots made a series of good decisions. They Luckily, the weather was beautiful. Had the weather been bad, it would have been a very, very serious thing. Because the weather was good, even though the pilot was being given advice after he ingested geese in both engines and flamed both engines out, he still had people giving him advice to try to return to the airport, which is absolutely the wrong decision without any power. He could have gone to Teterboro Airport on the uh, on his right on the New Jersey side, and that also would have been a terrible decision. These airplanes actually, like a 737, ditched very well. So he did exactly as he was supposed to do. He flew the airplane straight ahead, got down close to the water, flared it out, made a normal landing on the water. Everyone got out with no one being injured, which is the way it's supposed to work. Now, in the case of the snowbirds, though, they just didn't even really have that chance, eh? No, they really didn't. Uh, they had a lot of things stacked up against them. And there again, you have to make a decision based on what you see at that moment. Likely, he made the proper decision. Perhaps if he'd done something else, it would have worked out differently. We'll never know. When you're flying for the snowbirds, this obviously is a risk that you are very aware of all day, every day. As a pilot, Keith, is this just one of those pieces of the puzzle that kind of like when you're driving a car and you've got a green light, you just hope that everyone else stops at the red light? Is this just one of those, I hesitate to use the word, um, fateful things of a bird being at the wrong place at the wrong time that you just you just have to try to hope it doesn't happen? Well, to a certain extent, that's true, because the Kamloops airplane uh, airport is on the river. Uh, there's marsh areas around there. There's a lot of birds in that area. So there's a heightened risk operating near water for uh, a bird strike. Now, if I remember correctly, is it no TAMs that include uh, um, bird migration in the warnings? Well, they sometimes will do that if there's a tower. Many times if there's birds in the area, the tower will advise you. Some airports even have systems that are supposed to cause the birds not to want to be in the area by generating sounds that are unpleasant to them. But none of those things are perfect. And it becomes uh, a, a matter of, uh, unfortunately, the bird was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And... Uh, that doesn't happen very often. If you tried to hit a bird like that, you'd probably take you a long time to be able to do it. So it was purely an accident. 
do, do bird strikes for all the commercial flyers, or I guess we should say the used to be commercial flyers that hopefully will fly again one day soon. We're um, getting back to that. Slowly but surely. I'm far faster in the States, by the way. Um, but the, um, the, does this happen more often than we know? And we just don't ever find out about it because it's kind of a thump and a gone and nobody really knows? Well, it depends on the, uh, the seriousness of the damage. It's possible to ingest a bird and have the bird not cause the engine to uh, lose power and the flight could continue, land, and the air engine repaired. Uh, this is probably a more likely scenario. Uh, the air intake into the engine is actually rather small. And the possibility, of course, there's air rushing in there, suction air going in, and ram air from the speed of the airplane. But uh, the likelihood is that even if you come close to a bird, you're still going to miss it. And if you do strike it, it's probably going to be with a wing or the tail or some other part of the airplane. It'll cause some some sheet metal damage, but uh, it certainly isn't going to cause the uh, engine to stop running. Well, since we're here, just quickly, um, there has been some news out of aviation in the States that by May, some of these airlines will have all of their mothballed airplanes back into service. That's what they're that's what they're expecting. Now, in Canada, we're nowhere near that. Um, but that's got to be a good sign for aviation, isn't it? Yeah, it's picking up quite a bit here. In fact, I had to ride a flight out to California the other day, and it was completely full Wow! on all four legs, which surprised me. No empty seats. So things are picking up. Well, it's a good sign. Keith Mackey, thank you very much for uh, all of your insights and everything to do here. Um, I do look forward to chatting with you about positive results and amazing things in aviation that are going on. But let's just take a moment and acknowledge... Um, you know, the heartbreak that comes with this particular story. Thank you, Keith. You're very welcome. It was May 17th, 2020. Captain Jen Casey, uh, when um, that plane ingested a bird, they ejected and did not survive that. Uh, she was the, Jen Casey was the public affairs officer for the aerobatics team in Kamloops. And, um, a very scary series of events, very well described by Mr. Mackey. Um, but still remarkable to think that in that moment, the pilot did try to steer away from houses. Um, all because of a bird that just happened to be there. It's got to make you reflect and... Maybe believe in whatever you believe in, huh? This is the Shift Podcast. Now, normally when we plan out, are you okay? Sometimes we, you know, keep them secret, so it's a bit of a surprise. Sometimes we brainstorm about them all together. This particular are you okay that we're starting off with, I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited about Chiari. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do we got? I, uh, I, 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 I saw it. I was kind of mind blown, but at the same time, not surprised. So I thought it would be a great way to start. Are you okay? Are you okay with wedding speeches? Hmm. Yeah. As long as, I mean, that's the thing. If there's a lot of liquor involved, it could get real awkward. It could get very emotionally heated. Not that not to say that this happened at my wedding, but you know, a lot of stuff can just come out and this on the speech. Or you can go too long and you get the wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it can either be really excellent and really meaningful, or just the weirdest thing that happens and the whole day. Yep. Yeah. It can define the wedding if you're not careful. I got to MC one of my best friends' wedding and I had so much fun doing the speeches, but it's really funny because you can watch the crowd's faces. They watch, you know, there's two, and then the third one comes around, and they're like, all right, okay, next four, oh, my God, let me eat food and get drunk. Five, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. So wedding speeches keep them short and sweet, but in general, there's always, like, something in there that makes you smile. Yeah, it's like the guy who's never shared his emotions in his entire life decides that at your wedding, it's the first time he's going to talk about his feelings. That's usually how it kind of goes, right? 
Yeah. And exactly. it's also the guy that is dehydrated, been in the sun for the photo shoot all day, hasn't eaten and had too many beers in the limo on the way over and stood up for the first time in an hour and a half to make the speech. <laughs> How's that paint a picture for you? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, I mean, they're great if they're connective and emotional and, and be like, Hey man, you're awesome. Congratulations. You two are you two are peas and carrots. Have a nice life. High five. But if they're like this, I don't think so. It's been a while. It's been a while. Oh no! Since we've had oh, to no. have this conversation. Oh no, China. Sometimes you got to get married and go to China. He's bad. Former U.S. President Donald Trump agreed to make toasts at a Mar-a-Lago wedding over the weekend. He then proceeded to praise himself and complain about the election he lost at the wedding on the microphone. <laughs> of course. According to a video that was obtained by TMZ, uh, there is not enough money in the world um, that would stop me from buying this thing. He crashed the wedding in the most Donald Trump way possible. You know, I just got, I turned off the news, I get all these flash reports and they're telling me about the border, they're telling me about China, they're telling me about Iran. How are we doing with Iran? How do you like that? Well, they were ready to make it, you know, they would have done anything, they would have done anything. And this guy goes and drops the sanctions and then he says, we'd love to negotiate now. We're not dealing with the United States and they don't want to deal with us. And China, the same thing, they never treated us that way, right? You saw what happened a few days ago, it was terrible. And uh, the border's not good. The border is the worst anybody's ever seen it. And what you see now, multiply it times 10, Jim. You would know how to handle He's the only one I know that might handle the border tougher than me. He's killing. <laughs> Drop the sanctions. The border's not good, not good. It's almost a George Guys. Bush thing happening there. That happened at a wedding. Oh, right. <laughs> it was someone's wedding. I would be so mad. It's my moment. You know, this is the day I've dreamt of. You know, I'm starting my journey. And then Donald Trump comes up and rants about China for eight minutes. Uh, I mean, it, it makes a story. Jim would be 10 times better at the border than I would be. I think he just called Jim a racist. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, man. Uh, Mark says, heck no to wedding speeches, or as I call them, doobie breaks. <laughs> yeah. 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 So included in his little rant, Donald Trump pulled out the uh, Iran nuclear deal, imposed sanctions on the country in May 2018. He failed to strike a new deal in the second half of his term, by the way. So he complained about China. Uh, He's referring to something as terrible, which I think was the meeting in Alaska. Um Probably. So he has crashed weddings at his properties in the past. In 2017, he made an appearance at the Trump National Golf Club in New Jersey to greet a pair of newlyweds. You know, like what goes on in that man's mind that makes him go, you know what? What's going to make their wedding perfect if I show up? Me. Because I am the epitome of monogamy and loving relationships that are successful. (laughs) And not only that, I mean... If anybody can get it right, it's me because I've tried a bunch of times. Man, <sighs> at least he was using all of his like A material. He did. Yeah, he did. He did do the Trump like, you know, th- that's a Trump speech. Every Trump speech has always been that. China. Nobody's doing it better than me. Everybody's doing it worse than me. It's the worst the it's ever thing been. That would make that better cuz he was throwing out mega hats. Yeah. <sighs> Here's the hat for you. Make America great again. <sighs> I just I do not miss him. I man, I, I do. Really I totally do. do. <laughs> it was so entertaining. I mean, I don't miss the overload of the BS, but um I he was entertaining. But that's from afar and I don't live in that country. So yeah, he's all the wrong <laughs> never good for anybody, tell you that much. All right, are you okay? Are you okay with musicals? Heck yeah. I mean, I don't know. All that spontaneous singing and uh, all that sort of big expression of joy. I don't know. I, I like I like music, man. I'm not, not so much of a fan of musicals, I guess. 
Really? really interesting. I would have taken you for a musical no, aficionado. No, interesting. I, I would. What? It seems like the longest thing I could possibly sit through. No, they are. Is long. it the big fat jazz hands that scares you all the time, or it's all the? Uh, I don't know. It's all the expression of just uh, feelings. And feelings. <laughs> it, it's it's just too. What's the word? Ostentatious for my taste. Okay. What about operettas though? So that's like an entire musical without spoken words, just music. Have you ever seen one of those? Um, I mean, I've seen my fair share of musicals and operettas, and I don't know. I've I tried. I've tried to get some culture into my life. Yeah. And I just uh, failed, I guess. At least you've tried. That's fair. If you, you know, <laughs> you know, don't knock it till you try it. I mean, I I used to be like that. I thought musicals were dumb. And then my drama teacher said, Ryan, you need to take musical theater. And then I did. And then it's, it's all I did in high school. I love it. It's so much fun. I love the music. I love the, you know, the theatrics of it all. And wow. the Book of Mormon, man. That yep. everything in that musical is perfect. So I love it. Well, you did musicals and try to find your way out of the locker that you were stuffed into. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, man. It's one of the best yep. ones. Like, uh, it's producers. Great. I guess if, t- would Tommy count as a musical or a concept record? Oh, Tommy. It's a good question. I don't really know, I guess. Yeah. If it's, I, I guess if Pete Townsend's involved, sure, let's go with musicals. There you go. If Tommy well, I counts. Mean, technically, I mean, Tommy was, um, I mean, it was like a stage production. It wasn't like just a touring concert, was it? Yeah, no, I mean, they, it was, um, yeah. It was The Who, right? Yeah. Oh, I got a high five from Catherine. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> high five, Matt. Um, yeah, no, it was The Who. I mean, they call it a, they call, I mean, it was a musical. It was a musical. Yeah. I don't know. It's always kind of a musical. Yeah. I'd still rather stay home and put the headphones on and just be alone. (laughs) That's fair. If Judas Priest came out with a musical, you'd watch it. Ryan, does Nostradamus count as a musical? Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. If they write a screenplay or something, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm down. Mark says musicals are extra long doobie breaks. <laughs> there you go, Mark. Wait a second. I'm noticing a pattern here, Mark. Yes. <laughs> what about stage adaptation of Ridley Scott's Alien, put on by a group of bus drivers in the UK? Would you be okay with that musical? Heck yes. That sounds amazing. An, an amateur company. <laughs> Uh, in question, call themselves Paranoid Dramatics, and most of the members are employed by the Wilson Dorset Bus Company. Locals loved yeah, their is. production of Robin Hood, uh, while Alien was a bit <laughs> of <laughs> of um, uh, yeah. Well, it was a bit of a disaster, <clears throat> kind of like this script. It was so bad, it was actually amazing. That's a typo. Based uh, Alien on Stage would have sunk without a trace had it not been noticed by a couple of London-based artistic types who had a, the madcap idea of transferring it to the Broadway of London. Well, that's successful. Here's a trailer for the documentary about the production. One thing I do need to know, who's got their spacesuits? I haven't. Nobody move. We're just normal people, aren't we? Normal people don't do things like no. this. No. How the hell has this made it to the West End for one night only? I had absolutely no understanding as to why we're going to the West End or how it even happened. I can just about see. We all thought it was going to be another pantomime. And then somebody came up with this idea. I'm Luke and I wrote it. Dave is my dad and he's also the director. Uh, my mum is also playing with me. Calling Antarctica Traffic Control. And my granddad uh, designed the set. I'm sold. That's so, so cool. <laughs> That'd be impossible. Well, clearly it's not, but adapting a horror movie like that into a musical on Broadway. Yikes. Well, they worked hard. They tried to be dedicated and committed. The alien's costume was adapted from a motorcycle helmet. Jason Hill, also a bus driver who played Captain Dallas, said they had not meant to make a comedy, but we were all amateurs. We were making mistakes and coming up with ad libs. 
when the laughter began rolling in, the cast just went with it, and we turned it into a spoof. I love it. I love that. 877-399-9898. I hate musicals, but I Blues Brothers is a great musical. Wayne in Winnipeg. Thanks, Wayne in Winnipeg. Catherine says musicals are too weird. Glenn says, oh, come on. You must like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. Eh. Eh? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, or Repo, the musical, which is a horror musical. And yes, Tommy is a musical, says Glenn. So, Thanks, Glenn. Uh, yeah, I'm not winning oh, any Glenn. points with the musical theater crowd tonight. Let me tell you what. Uh, don't worry. They won't come after you. I mean, they might dance down uh, the street and chase you. They might, uh, like, they might. with their snaps. West Side Story. Yep. Yeah. The West Side Story. When you're a jet, you're a jet. <laughs> they'll dance fight you. <laughs> it's all the dancing. It's all the singing. <laughs> All that expression and fun <laughs> playfulness. Nobody loves that. Yeah. I'm not going to, I mean, you know what? Like, there's a lot of work that goes into it. I will acknowledge that. There's a lot of creativity. Maybe Catherine has a good question here. She says, what about Beatles, Yellow Submarine? Sergeant Peppers. I mean, those were all artistic, threaded everything. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is like a stage production of a musical. That's sort of what we're we're getting at here. All right. Whereas, whereas a concept record is something you can just put on your headphones and not have all that uh, synchronized choreography. You don't like to put on a suit. That's what this is all about, isn't it? I would put on a suit if it rocked. Like if I was playing a show, I would put on a suit if it rocked. Yeah. <laughs> you put on a sequin suit, little rhinestone cowboy. Yeah. yeah. If, if I had Jack one of those. Black. Yeah. If I had one of those like nudie suits, you know, like like those. Yeah. Like old school cowboy, old school cowboy suits. Yeah, I'd wear one of those. Wicked. <laughs> Google nudie suits, by the way. Just don't do it at work. It actually is a suit that's not like nude. It's like the dude named nude. Yeah. Anyway, it, it is sharp. It is very sharp. Absolutely. I will agree with that. Okay. Here on Are You Okay? Let's get into our next one with absolutely no context. Here's the clip. Hey, come over here, kid. Learn something. You never know. You might have to cook for 20 guys someday. You see? You start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste. You fry it. You make sure it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. You got it to a boil. You shove in all your sausage and your meatballs. Huh? And a little bit of wine. And a little bit of sugar. And that's my trick. Why don't you cut the crap? I got more important things for you to do. <laughs> Make me an offer. I can't refuse. Are you okay with cooking shows? Uh, yeah, if they roll out like that. <laughs> yeah, like Godfather-style cooking show? Count me in. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, a mafia fugitive has been caught in the Caribbean after appearing on YouTube cooking videos. <laughs> way, way to lay low, dude. Uh, the internet does reach beyond the ocean. 53-year-old Mark Farron Cloud Beartled? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Sorry, just the way you said that. Mark Farron Cloud Beartled? I think it's Beartled. Beartled. He is Italian, so Beartled. I don't know. Uh, here's a race. <laughs> Google Beartled and see if it's Italian last name or if you misspelled that. That's a typo. Oh, boy. Uh, anyway, uh, Mr. Mark uh, Farron Cloud. Beartled. His whole name's French, by the way. Uh, not Italian, uh, managed to live a peaceful life in the Dominican Republic. Local authorities thought he was an expat. Biart has also been on the run since 2014 when Italian prosecutors ordered his arrest for trafficking in cocaine in the Netherlands. Whoa. <laughs> this, this guy's made his rounds. In a YouTube video, he took the precaution of hiding his face, of course, but he had crazy tattoos that authorities were able to recognize. Um, he was betrayed by the pasta. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You wanted the cook of the pasta? Spaghetti's a snitch. And they got him. I'm not a snitch. Rotini. Rotini's the snitch. <laughs> That's, That's really, like, yeah, he took all those precautions, and he's like, I'm really excited to teach the people of YouTube how to make a really yummy dish. And then he just wakes up, and he's like, how many views did I get? 50,000. Oh, that's pretty good. And then he opens the door and the cops arrest him and he's back on back on his way to Italy. That'll be a funny um, story when he goes to jail. How'd you get caught? YouTube. 
Okay. I figured out, by the way, his name is Mark Farron Cloud Biart. Biart. I don't know where Biart led came from. So yeah. Well, he, he led a peaceful life is what the line is. Ah, there it is. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad we've I'm glad we do this at the end of the show now. Oh. <laughs> this is what happens. Yeah. Hey, I enjoyed it. That's a typo. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.